Let's dive into Genesis after we say a word to the Lord. Lord God, we don't understand what we're saying when we call you God because you are beyond everything. You created everything. And yet we do understand what we mean when we say God because what we're trying to say is that you are so much more, infinitely more. You are the one who's given us the gift of this life today, the gift of knowing through the life and death and resurrection and words of your Son that you call us back to the blessedness, to the joy, to the peace, to the power of living in your present reality. And so as we open our hearts and minds to you in the reading and talking about Scripture, we join that long line of people who have found in you our highest good and our deepest meaning and have found in you the bread of life, the source of all that we are. We remember these things now as we turn to you for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Okay, Genesis. Are you enjoying Genesis? Today we move into a section of Genesis that is in some ways much more difficult to understand or appreciate because it doesn't seem to have the poetry, the beauty, especially of the opening words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, such beautiful poetic stuff. Um, this section uh, that we're going to move into has a lot of so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and I can't even remember my own children's names. How can you remember all of those names, right? So we are going to read portions of this, but not everything in this. And I wanted to divide it up today uh, and read a section, chat about it a little bit, and then read another section. We'll divide this into three sections. And as we do that, let's keep um, an overarching kind of idea in our minds that God has created everything and said it's wonderful. God has created us and said we're wonderful. He's put us down in the garden where everything is wonderful, and the we, then we have messed it all up. And the messing it all up, the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit trying to be God, that's what the forbidden fruit is all about. The result of that, that Adam and Eve are no longer in this magnificently perfect relationship with God, nor are there children. We've talked about the story of Cain and Abel and how Cain's murder of Abel is the reversal, the cancellation of what God intends. And when that happens, there are consequences. These sections of uh, Genesis that we'll look at today, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 4, um, these sections continue to tell us about what humanity did after uh, leaving the garden and how humanity continued to go on a downward slide, a downward spiral, if you will. All of that is going to prepare us then for the story about a guy and a boat and a bunch of animals. But that's next week, and Jan will cover that for you. So we're still talking about the downward spiral. Does that all make sense to you? It's really helpful to know where we are in the big picture, especially when there's a lot of text. So let's read together chapter 4, verses 17 through 26, and we are going to read all of those. Cain knew his wife, 
And she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city, and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the ancestor of those who live in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the ancestor of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Okay, what are we going to do with this? There's an awful lot actually packed in here with an, an incredible economy of words. And um, we understand that these stories, these words are trying to say an awful lot to us without describing everything under the sun. This is at a time when, of course, people are retelling stories. That's how they shared information. Every once in a while, somebody would write down the stories, perhaps by making impressions in a clay tablet or taking the very expensive skin of a sheep and curing it and drying it so that they could write on it. Um, we produce billions of words instantaneously that mean nothing today. And so it's helpful for us to go back to a time when words and the reproduction and the sharing of them was an incredibly time-consuming and precious sort of thing. So what are these words uh, going to say to us? Well, there are several things we want to know, right? Cain knows his wife. That whole business of people, human beings, men and women coming together in relationship in order to keep the human race going. We are at a stage where we fret about all the problems of seemingly having too many children. And yet when humanity begins, the threat is not having enough children or not having enough children who successfully live and get past childhood in order to keep the race going. And so this partly takes us back to the beauty of new generations coming into the world, okay? We'll continue on. Enoch, Enoch builds a city. Enoch builds a city. Is there any mention of cities in the Garden of Eden? Nope, nope. Obviously, we don't have much description of the Garden of Eden, but here, what we are told is that as humanity begins to grow, more and more people are on the face of the earth. They build a city. How many of you have ever built a city? Anybody here ever built a city? Any architects? Who was the guy? Who was the architect of Washington, D.C.? What was his name? Do you remember? 
Lafayette or Lafitte or I don't know, some French guy I think it was, right, that made the layout for the city. Anybody here ever own a city? Have you ever owned a city? What's that? Monopoly. Oh, Monopoly. Ooh, I hadn't thought about that connection. Yeah, yeah. I always win at Monopoly. You want to take a note? <laughs> right? You, every once in a while, you hear about some tiny little town. You know, it's got 14 people in it or maybe four people, and one person owns the whole thing, or maybe they put a town up for sale. At any rate, the whole deal of Enoch builds a city says to us that as humanity grew, they learned that they needed to live together. Why do we need to live together? Or they wanted to live together. Why do we do that? Shout out some answers so we can hear them on the tape. Protection. Companionship. Sharing labor. Say it again. Commerce. Yeah, those are all good. You see, there's all kinds of things that we do together in community that we cannot do as well or cannot do at all by ourselves. And so this one little phrase says that was something that human beings did in order to survive, and God blessed that, God grew. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of problems of living in community with each other, aren't there? That's why your homeowners association has their covenants, codes, and restrictions. So amidst all of the beige houses in your neighborhood, somebody doesn't paint theirs purple with green polka dots all over the place. Enough said about that. So Enoch builds a city, right? More people are born. Lamech takes his two wives, okay? There's very clear understanding in the history of the development of humanity that polygamy was practiced in various and sundry ways, even amidst the people of God. The idea of monogamy, one man, one woman, and I know there's another conversation about that in the conversation about human sexuality. We don't have time for that today, and we won't condemn anybody today, but the essential story of Genesis, a man and a woman come together and have babies, right? And back in the old days, sometimes more women were included in that. I'm not aware of any place in Scripture, maybe some of you are because you read the Bible more than I do, but you may be aware of a time when one woman had multiple husbands. Would that be a good thing? No, <laughs> I, I can't imagine it. I, I don't understand how you afford more than one wife, but that's another story. So Lamech has two wives, right? And they have some sons, and that's a good thing. And then we're told a little bit more about the, the, the children, right? The ancestor of those who live in tents and have livestock. The story is telling us where everything came from. Now, that was a dangling participle, so we should say, from where everything came, right? How many of you understand what I just said there? Okay, very good. Thank you. Some of you had the same ninth grade grammar teacher that I did. <laughs> good. So some people live in tents and have livestock. We say, well, no, duh, of course they do. No, no. This is humanity creating as they live out their lives, their image of God in them, this is humanity creating civilization, 
What a beautiful thing that is, right? And then uh, Jubal, the ancestor of all those who play the lyre and the pipe, and Tubal Cain, right, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. This is a comment on the fact that out of human creativity that God has given to us, in the world that God has given to us, with the stuff God has given to us, with the minerals and the plants and the natural resources that we have, we make life happen, right? Music, art, bronze and iron, some of the stuff that we need to live, right? Again, that doesn't seem so remarkable to us because we simply know that history, but this is telling us how all of this comes as a gift from God as we work to make God's creation into what God wanted it to be. Now, we do have to ask the question, and we, in a sense, cannot answer the question, but what about if we had gotten to stay in the garden? Would we need to tend to the sheep? Would we need to create music? Would we need to build cities? Or would all of that simply be given to us? That question, I do not think, is answered in the Scripture. But what we do know is that after we're shoved out of the garden, God still is working with us. God never gives up on us. And God gives us the ability, taking what God has given us, to do all of these things. And so in that sense, we can say that your efforts, your work to come together in community, your work to create, uh, to, to, to mine the rocks from out of the ground and crush them and melt them and turn them into steel so that someone else can take the steel and make a new toaster that you can buy with the money your husband gives you for your birthday because he didn't have time to go shopping. <laughs> All of that is part of the expression of our creativity and our creating the human community as a good gift from God. Do you get what I'm getting at here? All that stuff that we do, understood as con uh, contributing the human community, all that stuff is good. Now, we have to balance that and moderate that, right? Should we strip mine and destroy the mountains that God has made? We're learning how to be better stewards of the creation and take all this stuff. We're learning how to uh, not overwork our people. We're learning how not to work our children when they're four years old. There's lots of things that we get wrong in this whole process. But if we understand that this whole thing is meant to be an expression of who we are as created in God's image, that gives us the controlling principle by which we evaluate everything that we do. Does that make sense to you? And all of that is contained in these few words. See, you didn't think much was here, but there's a whole lot more. Now, let's go on. Right? Lamech, yes, yes. I don't understand what they mean when they talk about... Um, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly, whatever, um, 77-fold. Yes, I, yes. What does that mean? I, that's exactly where I'm going. No, 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 no. I haven't talked about that. Let's talk about We've talked about human community and the creativity, okay? that's Now let's go to the story of Lamech, right? Lamech says to his wives, come over here. I'm going to tell you something. I have killed a man for wounding me. Okay? 
Now, very quickly, within the story of humanity, we have cold-blooded murder, Cain and Abel, and now we have revenge murder. Okay? We have revenge murder. Remember that downward spiral of humanity. What was the issue, right? Cain was upset with Abel because God accepted his offering and didn't accept Cain's offering. We talked about that last week. Now we say that here's some guy who, who has hit Lamech, right? He struck him. We don't know what it was, okay? He didn't kill Lamech. He just struck him. But in response, Lamech killed him, okay? That's the, the 77-fold. Lamech has avenged 77-fold, he has gone above and beyond what we would call an appropriate response, right? Uh, we might say, okay, well, if someone strikes you on the cheek, you get to strike them on the cheek. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That comes along later. Here, it is a completely disproportionate response to, uh, to the evil, all right? To the, to, the, to the dysfunctional relationship, right? And Lamet kind of brags about it. He's sort of happy about it, right? He brings his two wives and they listen to him for once. And, and, and he says, this is, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. Boy, did I get that guy, right? This is not a good thing. <laughs> this is not a good thing. That's what the, the, the 77-fold, right? Remember that number seven, of course, is a complete and whole number. You know, later on, Jesus says, I say to you that you need to forgive 77-fold. Seven times 70, right? So this is meant, our, our human response that comes out of us in the fallen condition in which we are is to go way overboard with our revengefulness and our anger. And Jesus comes along and says, no, go way overboard with your love and your forgiveness and your healing. Now, all of these things I'm saying deserve 42 sermons and 62 hours of Bible study. I know it's moving very quickly, but that's what that is about. Thank you for asking that question. And that's essentially what those couple of verses mean, right? Humanity began to learn how to destroy itself even more efficiently. That's what that means. We had a hand over here. Do you have the mic? There we go. Um, I'm sorry to backtrack, but that's okay. before you jumped into that, there was one little phrase that I have not been able to figure out. Mm -hmm. Why? Why do we know that the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama? Why do we know that or how do we know that? What's the purpose of that phrase? Why is it important? Why was it added? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. There may be, in some of the minutiae, the looking, and not that this is minutiae, there may be meaning to the names. Um, and a lot of this is just the names. Uh, let, me, let me say this, though, and this is, um, we see it more in the next chapter that we'll look at. But there are two major genealogies in, in Genesis. This is part of the genealogy, and then a comment every once in a while, oh, that's the one who did this, and that's the one who did that, right? Just like in your family histories, right? You can recite, well, you know, this is grandma and grandpa and the kids, and they had eight kids, and that kid became the rich uncle, or that kid became the, the horse thief and murderer, right? And then you go on. Um, why do we tell those stories? We'll go to that now, right? Why, do we, why are we interested in the genealogy, the history of who we are, okay? 
Would someone like to answer that question for me? Okay, let's get a microphone. I'm going to put Lynn on the spot quickly. Okay? Um, I think because it gives us a sense of belonging. Ah, the um, sense of belonging. We, we know where we came from. We want our ancestors to be wonderful people, but of course most of them aren't. Yes. <laughs> and, um, well, maybe they're 50-50. Yeah, I, th I think the main thing is that it gives us a sense of understanding where we fit into the bigger picture, where we belong. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer from a professional genealogist, okay? Yes, the whole story of Genesis is trying to locate us. Do you ever wake up in the morning sometimes and you don't remember where you are? Especially when you're traveling, Right? You know, you got to look at your, your plane ticket and say, where did I fly to yesterday, right? Okay, the genealogies are a way of telling us, and all of Genesis is a way of telling us where we are, who we are, why we are, because we wonder, and we need to know that, not just for the pure sake of curiosity, but because that helps locate us in a huge big world where we feel lost and where we don't understand anything and where we need to know all that so we can know what we're supposed to do today. Does that make sense to you? So the genealogies, as boring and as, and as hard as they are, especially because nobody knows how to pronounce the names, right? I, I fake it really well. It helps if you have dwelt in the Middle Eastern context a while and, and learn uh, a little, or, or at least you're exposed to Arabic or Hebrew or some of the native languages there, and you learn how people speak, right? It's just like if you go to Louisiana, you know, or if you go to, uh, to England or some other strange exotic place, right? You learn how people speak and you begin to redo that. The names are in many ways lost to us in history. We don't know anything about them. We don't know why they're there. Was it there are 10 generations listed here. Uh, do we mean to say that in just 10 generations all this stuff happened? Maybe, maybe not, but this is the memory of the people for who they are. Does that make sense to you? I will, if you will email me uh, or write me a note, because I can't remember, as I mentioned, I can't remember my children's names. If you will uh, email me that specific question, I'll do a little more research, see if I can come up with something. Okay, that, may be, that, that might become the best sermon that I ever preach. I don't know. Okay. All right, shall we keep on going? That's fine. These questions are not interruptions. This is part of the fun of all this, all right? So, uh, Lamech blows it in a sense, almost even, even, even worse uh, than Cain does, maybe not worse, but Lamech blows it, period, okay? And then we're told, all right, to Seth a son is born, he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Okay, as you go through all these, look at those little, those little phrases. They're, they almost seem like offhand throwaway comments, but they're hugely important. At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Do you have any guesses, if you haven't read ahead in the notes, as to what this might actually be saying to us? Any guesses? That he's swearing? That, he's swearing? Uh, that could be. That could be. The sense, of the, the sense of the Hebrew here is, is more along, he began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, not profanity, not profanity. Although, I, I'll, I'll be very honest with you, in, in some sense, this is a judgment call of commentators, right? 
So maybe it means profanity, and, 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 and people start to use the name of God in ways that God never intended or for their own purposes. That's what profanity actually is, right? The reason you're told not to take the name of the Lord in vain is because the name of the Lord actually has power and force and importance and meaning, and you are cheapening it, you are demeaning it, you are misusing it. So every time we say, this is one of my pet peeves, you know this, every time we say, OMG, oh my God this, oh my God that, and have no intent whatsoever of actually talking about God, that is a misuse that comes from out of something that's wrong in our hearts about the name of God. So, did I, do we have a question over here? We're good? Okay. So, the other, the other way this can be looked at, and yeah, okay, go. Get the, get the mic. First time they had some sort of organized worship. Yes, yes. That's where commentators tend to take this. People begin to call on the name of the Lord, right? Here we have uh, the, the beginnings of human religion. Okay? Think about this. In the garden, you don't need to go to church. You don't need to study the Bible. You don't need to pray. You do still need to send your checks in to the church, by the way. Stuart, no. <laughs> right? There's no such thing as what we think of as organized, or in our case of the village church, highly disorganized religion. Okay? There's no need for that because people are in the perfect relationship with God. They live it, they breathe it. It's almost like fish swimming in water. They don't even know they're in water, right? But now people are kicked out and people begin to realize they need to do something. They're called to do something. There's an impulse in them that says, I got to get back to whatever it was that's missing that's more important than all this other stuff that I'm doing. Those are the impulses of human religion in some sense, right? And here is the beginning of religion. To invoke the name of the Lord is very, very uh, ten, uh, terse, is the word I want. Uh, a, a very, very succinct way of saying people began to say, wait, there's more going on here. And what are we going to do about that? Right? In a very real sense, everything that we do in our religious expression of life is meant to try to put us back into that perfect relationship with God. God gives us those things to do, right? God wants us to actually speak with Him, right? In a real conversation. Uh, I say speak with, sometimes that means speak to, sometimes that means listen, and as always, listening is way better than talking, right? So this is the beginning of, of the gift of faithfulness and faithful expression and the stuff that, that we get to do, not the stuff we have to do, right? I know every single one of us thinks that if you don't go to church enough times that you're not going to get to heaven. And some people think enough times is Christmas and Easter, and other people think enough times is when you're in town but not when you're traveling, blah, 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 right? It's not what you have to do, it's what you get to do. So this is the beginning of human religion, okay? So that's kind of what this whole section is about. Human culture is created as part of the good gift of God out of what we are given by God in order to make humanity work. And so in a sense, this tells us where it comes from, where all culture comes from. It tells us about the, the sacredness of all culture, 
right? The sacredness of religion. We get everything wrong. We get our religion wrong. Yes, we mistake things. We, we, we get processes wrong. But there's a lot of it that's right, right? It's a good thing that, that you learn how to bake brownies and that, that you learn how to replace valves and hearts and all that stuff that we do, a great gift from God. And so in that sense, all of human activity and culture is touched by the blessedness of God and also touched by our sinfulness, but that's a, another story. Does that make sense to you? That's what the story's telling about. Let's see where we are. Okay, let's keep on going. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 32, and here I'm going to skip a lot of uh, the genealogy stuff. This is verses 1 through 3, first off. This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, He made them in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Okay, this is almost another creation story, but the big thing that we want to look at here is the fact that when God creates, he puts his image in us. When Adam creates, it's Adam's image that's in us, right? Maybe this is simply a commentary that Adam's son looked just like Adam. Or maybe it's a commentary that as humanity begins to reproduce and grow and procreate, that we move further and further away from the image of God and more and more in the image of ourselves, and that's a problem. That's a problem. Because what does the original story say to us? We want to express the image of God versus the image of humanity. Now, that may seem like reading an awful lot back into that simple phrase, but remember, when you only have a few words, every single word holds a lot of weight. It has a lot of meaning. If you look at the large flow of the story where everything is spiraling downwards and, and, and going from the place where God made everything and it's perfect... What happened so that later on God decide everything is messed up? I've got to destroy it and start over. What, happened? what, what made you do this, God? <laughs> That's the explanation that we're seeing here, is that we started to put ourselves in the place of God. Adam said, I'm going to have a boy and he's going to be just like me. Well, that's great, Adam, because you're wonderful in some ways, but he's also going to be just like you in, in, in your terribleness. Right Now, you all understand that, you know, that, that you want your sons and daughters to learn a few things from your husbands, but mostly nothing. You want them to learn from you, right? Okay? Let's keep on going. Let's skip forward to verse 22. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him. Let's stop right there for just a second so we can move through this a little bit more quickly. Enoch walked with God. Okay? What do you want put on your gravestone? 
The best gravestone I've ever seen, I think, is in Princeton, New Jersey, in the same cemetery where Grover Cleveland and Aaron Burr and a few famous historical figures from that era are buried. But the best uh, gravestone, I don't remember the guy's name, I remember what was said on it. What was said on it was, in quotation marks, see, I told you I was sick. Literally. Literally. In a sense, on Enoch's gravestone, Enoch walked with God. What do you want on your gravestone, right? Out of all these people that are living and, 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 and being born on the face of the earth, people like Lamech, who messes everything up, like Cain, who messes everything up, on the other hand, there are people who get it more right than wrong, we might say. Enoch walked with God. There is a storyline throughout all of the scriptures. The storyline goes this way. God does something magnificent, we mess it up, and we threaten to undo the good that God has done. God creates existence, we play with the possibility of non-existence. As we go through that history, it seems time and time again that we're going to mess it up so bad that we're going to destroy creation. But God never lets that happen. You might have heard this term, the faithful remnant. There are always a few. There are always a few. There's Noah and his family. We'll look at those next week, right? There's always a few who remain faithful to God. And with those few, God rebuilds everything. That story plays itself throughout Scripture. Enoch is one of those few. He walks with God. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Methuselah lived after the birth of Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son. He named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Okay, we've already talked about the genealogies. This genealogy takes us to the place where we get to Noah. Now, Noah's a big name. We remember the name of Noah, do we not? Of course we do, because of what's going to happen. This story tells us where Noah came from, right? Noah, kind of like Enoch, is one of those people who's born into the mess that humanity has made of everything, but later on, we're going to learn that, that God looks at the mess that we have made of all of it. And God says, oh, wait, there's one family. And I'm not going to destroy that family. For the sake of one, I'm not going to destroy the earth. I'm going to recreate in some sense. This is who this Noah is. Notice that Lamech says, after he has Noah, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. It's kind of a cryptic phrase there, some different ways you can look at it, I suppose. But in a sense, what this seems to be saying is that 
the, the potential, the possibility for God saving everything is built into some of who God has created. And Noah plays a role in that, right? We always say about Jesus that we needed a Savior, right? We can't save ourselves. And yet here, God is saving everything through Noah. And Noah, I don't mean to take what Jan's going to talk about, but this is all connected. Noah, why, why, why was God successful in saving everything through Noah, right? What had to happen? Noah had to say, okay, I will build the boat, right? Just like Abraham had to say, okay, I will pick up the family and move, right? Someone down here, one of you has to say, okay, God, I'm going to, in a sense, cooperate with you in your plan to save everything. Not that Noah's special, right? Not that God loves him more than everybody else, but he's the one who says, okay. So from out of the ground, from out of the creation that God has made, God intends to continue to bless everything and everyone. You can take that principle, that's a huge principle, and zero it down to your life. Focus it down to your life, right? How does God intend to save a little piece of His creation, to bless a little bit of His creation through what you will do today? Isn't that an interesting question? And that all comes out of this, if you take it as a logical thought. Okay, one last thing. Feel free to raise your hand and get a microphone and interrupt me and correct me. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, one of the strangest pieces of all of Scripture. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Okay, this little snippet of story is sort of disconnected from all the other stories. It doesn't flow naturally in a sense, but it flows into the larger theme, right? Remember what what people used to think about God before God himself appeared to Abraham and said, hi, I'm God and there's only one of me and you're going to have to deal with me now, right? People used to think that there were gods all over the place. People used to think that there were gods up in the heavens and that sometimes the gods came down from heaven and mated with the pretty women, the sons, the male gods came down. Occasionally there's some stuff in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, where you have a female goddess mating with a male. But generally it's the male with the female. The sons of God, all those gods floating around out there, came and found the pretty girls. And the pretty girls wanted to mate with the sons of God because they wanted their children to be part God. Does that all make sense to you? 
What is the human impulse? What's the fundamental problem with humanity? Go back to the garden. I'm God, and this is the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of what God actually is, who God is. And if you know that, then you can become like God. We want to put ourselves in the place of God. Here is another attempt by human beings, by crossbreeding, to become like God. There's what the issue is. And what does God do about it? What does the true God do about it? He says, ha, that's probably a little too humanistic there, sorry. <laughs> Don't strike me. My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their day shall be 120 years. You notice, of course, in the genealogies that everybody else that's come before lives forever and ever and ever. They make Woody McAndrew look like an infant, right? Poor Woody, I pick on him all the time because I'm so proud of him, right? 102, okay? People are living longer and longer, kind of. It's like, well, maybe people will eventually live forever. They'll become immortal. They'll be like God and says, God says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. From now on, 120, that's all you get, right? Most of us don't get that far. Some of us are getting closer, right? I got to 66 yesterday, by the way. That's just what the number is. It, no, that's, that's not, you know, is anybody here older than me? Don't answer that. Oh, see, I'm so proud of you. I don't know how you've survived that long. At any rate, okay, God says, no, you cannot become me. I'm not going to make you into a God who's going to live forever. My spirit that I breathed into you that made you in the first place is my spirit. It's my power. It's not yours. God is putting us in our place, right? Now, who are the Nephilim? That's one of the big questions. There's a lot of lore. There's a lot of tradition about maybe sometime in the deep, dark past, people were bigger, they were stronger, there were, there were giants, there were these amazing Amazon kinds of people around. Some people think, um, it's a crazy idea to me, but some people think that the Nephilim were the little green men from Mars who actually came and planted human civilization on this planet. And all we got to do is find out where those space people came from, and then we'll know what we're all about. And that's the origin of everything, is from those space people. Except those people who think that can never tell me where those space people came from, so we have a problem. At any rate, I, we don't need to waste a lot of time thinking about the Nephilim. The meaning of the story is that, yet again, we found another way to try to become like God, and that doesn't work. And that's the last story that we're told before we're told that God finally becomes, in a very anthropomorphic sort of way, God finally gets so incredibly frustrated with us and so disappointed in how everything has gone wrong that he's going to destroy it and start over. But that's for next week. Okay, we have time for nothing more. Let's have, just have a couple thoughts. Raise your hand and get a microphone, please, very quickly. Just quickly, you, you said that people wanted to be like God, which is, it is part of the problem. But this scripture says that the sons of God are the ones that were seeking out the daughters, not the other way around. Right, so the sons of God, right? Uh, sons of God is a way of referring to demigods. Here's a place where we have a, a fusion of language and a fusion of stories and images uh, from 
from mythology, if we will, from all the stories that humanity was creating to try to describe everything. And sons of God is a way of referring to all the, all the gods that are out there. Now, of course, we don't believe that they are real, that they exist. We believe that's our imagination, right? Now that's what we believe. But in the ancient world, when people are struggling to try to understand, even the people who are part of, of that lineage and line that ultimately is going to result uh, in, in, in the people of Israel, when people talk about the sons of God, they simply want to say that there's a lot of, lot of gods floating around out there, and it's those gods, right, that we know are, are not real, but that's what they thought. It's those gods who wanted to come uh, and, and, and be fused together with human beings. Does that make sense? That they're what? No, well, no, they're not people. They're they're gods, right? But we believe in one God. See, that's why. Yeah, I know we believe in one God, but back then, and it's true still today, some to some extent, back then people believed in many gods. True, they believed in them, but they don't exist. They they don't exist exactly. But so this is a place where a story is being told about all of these gods. Okay, that we know are not really God, but they believed they existed. And so this is a place where people are saying, oh, the gods are doing all of this. Uh, the story has been morphed and changed. It hasn't been edited carefully enough in a sense. Does that make sense to you? Uh, as a follow-up to that. Hold it right the, here. Is this a time when uh, people like kings claim to be from uh, born of a pagan god so that they would yes. be revered as... Yeah, yeah. All, all throughout the, the, the non-Judeo-Christian world or the non-Jewish world, um, people continually claim to be part God or maybe all God. Uh, and that's a very strong impulse. There are some politicians today who claim to be God. Um, so I, this is a fusion of all of those images and stories into this one story. That's where that comes from. Okay, Future. let's pray. Thank you, God. Amen. Go, eat.